0: Hello listeners, thank you for tuning in to Runnymede Radio. My name is Brian Bird. I'm the Communications Associate for the Running Society. This is our second episode of the 2019-2020 academic year, and we're pleased to have with us today Dr. Jeffrey Sigalit, a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University's Research Group on Constitutional Studies. Dr. Sigalit completed his PhD at Princeton University and has held fellowships at Stanford Law School and Queens University Faculty of Law. He specializes in public law and political theory, with an emphasis on constitutionalism, constitutional dialogue, and republicanism. In this episode, Dr. Sigalit will discuss a collection of essays he co-edited alongside Gregoire Weber of Queen's University and Rosalind Dixon of the University of New South Wales. The collection, published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press, is entitled Constitutional Dialogue, Rights, Democracy, Institutions. In this episode, Dr. Sigalit is interviewed by Mark Mancini, the national director of the Runnymede Society. And with that, I'll pass it over to Mark and Jeff. Thanks again for tuning in.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Brian, for that introduction. Uh, Jeff is with us. Hello, Jeff. How are you today?
2: I'm very good. Thanks for having me here, Mark.
1: Oh, not a problem. I'm uh, very excited to talk about this edited collection of yours. It's, again, the title is Constitutional Dialogue Rights, Democracy, and Institutions and uh jeff sigalette gregoire reber and rosalind dixon so we're very happy to discuss this today so let's just jump right in jeff sure. uh for those uninitiated what how would you describe dialogue constitutional dialogue and 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 then after that can you just talk a little bit about what's so important about dialogue
2: well it's a bit of a loaded idea just describing it um and so in the book what in the introduction to the book what uh what, what I and my, co-op, my, co-ed, my co-editors and co-authors on the introduction try to do is say that how we describe the, the term ends up relying a lot on our normative intuitions about what it should be doing. So what a dialogue is tends to rely on why we value it. But at its just most basic level, you can think of dialogue and, and, and thinking of, of, of why dialogue might, might matter generally. As just a matter of at its very most basic level, a matter of the idea that there's something special or important about when courts and le- how courts and legislators interact. So when judges make a decision um, about a statute and its constitutionality, uh, how do legislators react to that? Does the legislature respond? and then how does the court look at that that further interaction? So when we tend to when we traditionally argued about judicial review, and always envision it uh, in terms of a, in a kind of static way. Legislatures have this power to pass laws and courts have the ability to strike them down or reinterpret them um, and various and, and different kinds of powers and different kinds of constitutional systems. But the idea of dialogue complicates that. And it shows that there's, it points out that there's this um, more dynamic relationship potentially between courts and legislatures generally. And so that's important because it's it's become um, not only a uh, metaphor that's used by scholars to think about uh, about the relationship between courts and legislatures in different constitutional systems, but it's also been used by courts themselves to describe their relationship with legislatures, Um, and uh, and that's I think it's particularly become particularly important to uh, the Commonwealth countries that have introduced bills of rights of various types in the latter half of the 20th century, Um, uh, but also in the United American context. And, and, and of course, as we have a whole section of the book dedicated to the idea of dialogue at the uh, international level, dialogue between international courts and domestic courts and dialogue between courts at different levels. Um, So we have essays on... uh, transnational dialogue, international dialogue, Um, although that's only one section of the book.
1: That's very interesting. So obviously dialogue is a concept that has permeated courts all over the place, Uh, but particularly, as you mentioned, and we'll hopefully get into this a bit later, it's it's permeated Canadian courts. And so I just wanted to ask, what was the purpose, what was the purpose of the book, uh, of the volume, methodologically, and in terms of filling a void in the literature? In reference to this metaphor that is so prevalent in Canadian constitutional law?
2: Well, I think a little bit in the same vein as our debates about the living tree and its relationship to the person's case. Mm. um, When we think about metaphors in constitutional law and constitutional theory, we can become a bit, um, we can start to speak past each other, oddly enough. A metaphor is supposed to pick out something we agree about so we can understand it. But I think, oddly enough, i know, perhaps not oddly enough once it becomes subject to, to enough scrutiny and debate it actually turns out people are using the metaphor in different ways right um and what i what i think has happened is in the canadian context um the idea of dialogue the metaphor of dialogue has been used by the court in different ways over time um and it by different scholars trying to debate and understand those those different uses over time um and what we wanted to do with this volume, uh, and it's based off a conference that I, I, uh, that I organized at Princeton uh, during my graduate studies there, uh, what we wanted to do was bring members of the Canadian judiciary in, bring, um, bring uh, scholars from the Canadian Legal Academy who do constitutional law, bring political scientists who've written about this, like Reiner Knopf and Dennis Baker, in um and bringing legal philosophers in and also um potentially help help canadians understand this this metaphor in our own system better by uh relating and comparing it to other contexts so we wanted to we also invited lots of scholars from uh the other commonwealth countries with statutory bills of rights the united kingdom we had richard eakins from the united kingdom um we had scholars from australia rosalind dixon one of my co-editors um and we we wanted we wanted, um, we wanted uh, uh, to make a comparative conversation a, a part of it as much as an interdisciplinary conversation. So that was the goal of the volume. It's pretty interdisciplinary and and uh, also comparative and international.
1: That's great. Well, in sort of in, in the last answer, you mentioned that dialogue has been used in different ways by scholars and courts. So that gives it a bit of a slippery character, I would think, uh, similar to the living tree metaphor that that many of us at Running Me talk about so much. So I was just wondering if you might be able to give a bit of a, a bird's eye view of the different ways in which dialogue has been used. Uh, maybe just some of the ways that courts have used it or scholars have used it. Sure. So why don't I just say uh,
2: give a brief the, the sort of facts on the ground of the way the sure. court, the Canadian Supreme Court has used it. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it's been used in a couple of cases, in a number of cases, um, but I think there's two standouts. Um, there's sort of like the high watermark and the low watermark, uh, in a way. Well, and the high watermark, um, it had been er- used early, even earlier in cases like Vriend, Um, but I think the high watermark of dialogue talk came in a case of the Queen and Mills, Um mm-hmm. Which is a, uh, a legal rights case uh, relating to uh, uh, sexual assault and uh, rape shield and rape shield laws, um, and the case came after uh, an earlier case, the Queen and O'Connor. And what happened is Parliament had responded to that decision with a, with a, with a change that seemed to. Uh, that seemed to basically enact what the minority, uh, the, what the minority of of uh, what the dissent, sorry, in the in the O'Connor decision, had had sought in terms of the law, their vision of how the charter related to this problem, the legal problem. And we can get into the, what the legal problem was uh, in a bit, but we were just after what the me- what was going on with the metaphor, right, right. And the and the and then Mills in the later case, the court said, well, Parliament's replied to this us in the statute, basically. Um, Coming out with a different view of how the charter relates to these legal rights in this context, um, and we're okay with that. That's a the that's a the, the the parliament is in a dialogue with us about what the charter means, and it's it's it, it's this and w- and what the charter means isn't something we have a monopoly on. They indicate that they that they indicate. I'm not in so many words that they have a, that they don't have a monopoly on charter interpretation, but they say that it's up to parliament to engage in a dialogue with us about the meaning, about elaborating the meaning of charter rights in these kinds of hard cases. Um, and that's sort of in a way, I mean, I think that's the high watermark of what the court's using dialogue to describe its own relationship with Parliament vis-a-vis the Charter. I think uh, a few years later in a prisoner disenfranchisement case, the the sove cases, Sauvé 1 and 2, so well, Sauve, and, and it comes up in Sove 2, in Sauvé 1, the court strikes down uh, Parliament's um, Restri- the statutory restrictions on prisoner voting, saying that they are disproportionate violations of the section Charter Section three right to vote. Um, later, uh, after Parliament enacts a new law that doesn't have a that that has a, a not a blanket uh, ban on on prisoner on dis- um, prisoner voting, but a uh, qualified ban saying only prisoners that have uh, served that are in prison for, I think it's, uh, I think it's sentences of three years or more. Can't vote. Um, the court get the, the new statute, the, the amended statute gets challenged again along the same grounds, section three grounds and parliament says, uh, and, and the court says in response to that amendment, um, dialogue can't be, uh, reduced to the game of, uh, of try of fail once try again. Right. Of course, exact words are. Yeah. But it's sort of the uh, in a way, the low watermark market dialogue talk. Right after they had had these this high talk about their the autonomy of Parliament in interpreting a Charter in rela- in dialogue with them, they've sort of uh seemed to have seemed to go back on that idea and uh, and uh, and diminish. Uh, the role for dialogue and this mm. tied up in Canadian constitutional law with how to think about sections one and section 33 as a relate to dialogue theory, but in our particular constitutional context, because in the survey case, they say the court says um, as the majority has just re- reaffirmed in the recent Frank case on, on expat voting, right. That yes. Section 33's non-application to section, to section three means the court can be more aggressive in, mm. in the protecting rights that aren't subject to, a statutory response that can be enacted notwithstanding uh, the Charter.
1: Right. So that opens up, uh, I think that answer opens up some interesting normative questions that I'd like to get to about dialogue theory. And I think the first is that uh, the court seems to say two things about its role in constitutional cases. On one hand, it says in Hunter and Southern, for example, the court says, we're the guardians of the constitution. Uh, the judiciary is, and we have a special role in enforcing constitutional rights. On the other hand, in the dialogue cases, like in, in Mills, for example, the high watermark, the court is entering into a far more equal position with the legislatures, presuming that the legislatures have something to say about rights and freedoms that should be given due weight. And so my question to you is how do you reconcile these two things and and does the court reconcile these two visions of its own role in constitutional cases
2: well I, I think that um, it is as you said complicated by how different rights are seen um, to relate to this possibility for dialogue but dialogue really is that's that's the promise of it is it it's uh it's an attempt to say um, that uh, that there's some way of reconciling the need for the guardian, uh, the the the, cons- the the judiciary as the guardian of the constitution to protect rights against majoritarian or uh, against majoritarian threats of various kinds, but also to be open to democracy and to diminish the potential um, difficulty that comes with that role, which is that it potentially threatens the democratic resolution of different kinds of rights disagreements that aren't um that are subject that are not really determinate matters of what the charter means as a matter of law, um, but still impinge on big big pol- public policy issues and um and therefore threaten to bring an an unelected uh institution uh to bear on, uh, on settling on, une- on, on, un- potentially unequally settling our disagreements about those kinds of rights, uh, how those rights relate to these kinds of policy disagreements. So dialogue promises in that, in that, like in reconciling those two, pro- those two issues. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not it su- succeeds, depends a lot on what we mean by how it would succeed. Uh, and a lot of other premises about how we think about the problem of, how we think about those problems and those and those difficulties, right?
1: Right. So I, I think you know you're saying there's a potential for dialogue to reconcile these two different visions of the of of the role of the court in ca- contemporary Canadian constitutional law.
2: Right. That's exactly Great. right. Yeah. Great potential. I I think that I think that and and that was the initial. The initial, the article that started off the dialogue talk that, that the court riffs on in Vriend and in Mills too is, was written by, uh, by Peter Hogg and Alison Bushell, Right. later they yeah, had another co author join them and another iteration of the article. But the initial article said, um, its subtitle was, maybe the, uh, maybe the, uh, charter isn't such a bad thing after all, uh, because we can find dialogue, uh, in the interactions the court has with the legislatures. So we see, what they did was they counted all of these invalidations um, that that were met with statutory replies. And they said, look, these statutory replies indicate that section one and section I mean and section one and section thirty three, more section one, um enable this ability for courts for legislatures to reply to courts uh via ordinary legislation in a way that diminishes our our worries that we, the worries we might have, the worries that a lot of Canadians had, uh, in the wake of the entrenchment of the charter, um, about the undemocratic aspects of, Mm. of involving courts in some of these public policy issues. And, uh, that was taken up by the courts to say like, look, we're engaged in this dialogue. We're open to parliament responding. Um, and, and in some cases that led to, and like as in mills, it led to deference to, uh, legislative replies to earlier decisions, and in some cases, it was used to say to actually justify a kind of more aggressive uh, review of some things, like in Brienne, where the court reads in uh, reads in uh, its its understanding of uh, equality into the uh, Alberta uh, Human Rights Act, right? Right. Uh, and the court there says, look, we're we're in a dialogue here. Uh, you can always respond with the notwithstanding clause. I mean, the Klein government even considered it in that case. Uh, but it's in dialogues being used in a very different way there. It's being used to say we're aggressive, we're being aggressive because you can reply to us. Uh, but it can also be used in a way where you say, where the court says, uh, we understand you have a role to play in this, so we're going to defer to you.
1: So that's, a, that's an in- a question in which I'm particularly interested, uh, the role of deference, because we talk about, uh, obviously, we talk about deference in the administrative law contest, but there's you know, in Canada, I would say there's probably comparatively less literature about the circumstances under which deference is triggered to Parliament and the legislatures when they pass laws implicating constitutional rights. So when you're talking about uh, the levels of deference based on legislative responses, it reminds me of the sort of tiers of scrutiny system that exists in the US. So are you of the view that this is a, you know, it makes sense to defer to legislative responses like on the second go around or should courts be applying a uniform standard of review to all instances of legislation that implicate constitutional rights and values
2: so that's a great question um uh i i am of the view and when we get into this we talk about my chapter in the volume Mm -hmm. my view is that uh that there is some deference owed to a statutory reply to a uh, to a uh, earlier decision about the charter that implicates it. I don't think that that means that that should be blind deference. Um, I think that it's, it should be primarily oriented towards the possibility that the court can make a mistake about what the law meant in that context. Um, And, and so I have a kind of, I have a my view is a little more some might call it a derog- in a derogatory way as formalist. Mm. Uh, others might say uh, you know that I'm a little more positivist in my orientation about this. But I think that the deference isn't this thing that's politically owed to anything uh, any legislative reply to an earlier charter decision. You know if the if if it's a, like a blatantly uh, unconstitutional. Uh, law is passed and, char- and the court strikes it down. The court owes no deference to a response that tries to enact it again. Um, mm. And in that sense, I don't believe in uh, this kind of idea that there should be some political uh, uh, second, or, second uh, deference to second uh, to replies to legislative replies. But I do think that there's look, the court can be wrong. The court reverses itself uh the court overturns its precedent and it does it, it actually it's done it in a, in a fairly astonishing rate in the last right yes exactly and if the court can overturn itself then why wouldn't why wouldn't we expect the court to potentially uh, if the court can make mistakes then why wouldn't we expect the court to potentially learn from learn from parliament about what mistakes it might have made in the past
1: well it's a great point and i i think you know if we take the instances of dialogue seriously, or the metaphor of dialogue seriously, it would lead us to conclude that the legislatures do have something to say, and that they should be permitted uh, to contribute to the conversation, and that court should perhaps pay respect to those contributions. Right, right. So uh, we're just wrapping up here, uh, Jeff, but I did want to ask you one last question, and it's about your chapter in in, in the volume. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you were getting at in your chapter in the volume and uh, why you think it's important.
2: Well, what I try to do is theorize a bit more about what people are after when they value dialogue to differentiate um, what we talked about, some of the ways the court might talk about it to justify what it's doing by a dialogue and, and what's going on in some of the literature about it. And I think that you can tease out uh three different values three different reasons you might want dialogue that are that are really distinct and one uh, but, but but two of which can overlap to some extent the third is very i think is quite distinct um and the three reasons are first reason is that you might want dialogue as a kind of means of contesting and smoking out bad justifications and prejudice uh and majoritarian tyranny lying behind laws relating to rights so this goes with like the more preemptive use of dialogue right. where dialogues used by courts say like look we're really trying to smoke out what's going on here you can always reply and then that contestation will will maybe figure some things out about what we're really up to. Um and what I say is that this way of thinking about dialogue uh if if we think about it from a concern with from a real concern that starts off with a concern for both rights and for um democratic the ability of democratic legislators to have a role and in, in resolving our disagreements about those rights, that that way of thinking really distorts both of those concerns. Because if, insofar as we're worried about rights, it really rights kind of fall out of the picture. We're, if we're worried more about like legislatures' reasons for infringing rights, whether uh, and whether or not those are good reasons or bad reasons or related to majoritarian prejudice, then the court's not focusing on what rights mean and what they and how they and 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 that's their job and that's what they're. Uh, in my view, that's why we have select them from lawyers and select, uh, right. select judges from lawyers and, and have an independent judiciary. It's yes. It's equipped to say what the law means, not to uh, interrogate the reasons legislators might have for different kinds of things. Right. Um, I mean, that might be some part of what rights mean in different circumstances, but it's not talking about infringing rights for good or bad reasons. It seems like a bad kind of dialogue. So I call that kind of dialogue interrogative dialogue. And I think that it's objectionable on the grounds if you value rights. So, if you value, value democracy, mm. and the second uh, kind of dialogue that kind of can, that can go with the first is called interruptive. And this is the view that I was talking about, and that my co-editor has, um, Rosalind Dixon. She's really been pretty influential, I think. In her view, is that uh, courts should interrupt uh, different kinds of of laws that relate to rights in 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 circumstances where they, those laws are are related to legislative processes that don't represent different groups well enough, or are um, are potentially uh, potentially just uh, just not being legislated on like there's a law an older law that that hasn't been changed because it's subject to a lot of gridlock between the parties or it's low in priority. Or you know, and she go and then she goes with my view. Uh, she also accepts my view to an extent because there's some, app- problem with the application of the law to these specific circumstances, um, and as I relate to this right and this particular individual or group. Um, and she says that courts should interrupt in their first look these kinds of statutes, and then if there's a reply to them in any of those circumstances, they should they should typically def- defer. To oh, that. I see. Okay. And so it's an interesting. Take on and and use and I think it draws on John Hart Ely's work in on, on the democratic role for courts in representing democracy. Um, but I, what I take uh, what I take as a problem with it is that it often is really actually bound up in that first view of dialogue, where courts are really looking at the behind the law these reasons that people might have for violating rights rather than what rights mean. Um, and then it also in most of the circumstances where courts will end up doing this, they kind of do a legal realist thing and look behind the law for what actually is being, who's being represented or what. The courts aren't very good at that, those are highly contested. So in some issues, um, like let's say in assisted suicide, we have different kinds of vulnerable groups. We have people that are vulnerable because they are at late stages of suffering and and seek medical assistance in dying, and they have a view that that's their right. And then they have other groups that are vulnerable, like uh, potentially vulnerable older persons in our society and, indigenous people that that have high rates of suicide and um and why not and we have different minorities at stake in these kinds of uh processes and it's not the job of courts to look behind the rights question in front of them about how the rights relate to these individuals litigating this case to see how well represented they've been or who's been represented and who matters behind this this um this law that's been enacted by our by our democratic processes
1: right and it's straight it's straight just to. Interject. It strikes me as you know, if that were the case, that would be an impossible task for courts to conduct, just institutionally.
2: It's very difficult, and it, and when you yeah. think about like their capacities, like their institutional capacities, where we limit courts to the facts of the trial world, which can be pretty narrow and related to just these circumstances, right? Right. When you have when you and, and by and we can contrast that. I think we always tend to look down on legislatures, and you know, I don't disagree with like all lots of the problems that we have with, our, with parliament and, and the provincial legislatures. Um, but when we look at their committees and what committees, what kind of facts committees can evaluate, they typically get a much bigger fact pattern and set of, and set of views about how this policy is going to relate to all these right. groups and rights. Concerns. Right. So I, I just think that legislatures are comparatively better at that part of things. Um, and so that leads me to my view, which I draw on on James Madison's Federalist Papers and, and Federalist 37, um, on, on his on his that's his contribution, not Hamilton or Jay's. Mm. And I say that look, dialogue really corresponds to this idea uh, Madison has, this republican idea Madison has in 37, where he says that courts where, where laws are indeterminate in the Constitution, they'll be liquidated. Um, or clarified that doesn't mean liquidated doesn't mean like you have a fire sale and you sell and you get rid of it. It means like they're clarified. Right. Um, and constructed. And I say that that's the best word to use today because liquidated will confuse everybody. That, could, that constructive dialogue is what we really want. We want courts to not, um, not. And, and Madison has two conditions for liquidation for construction. He says one is that it won't concern any determinant right. So things that are just clear in the constitution like, let's say the president's age, you know, whatever. Or in our constitution, there's some things that are quite clear, too. Uh, those things, they're not, those those clear, determinate rules can't be violated by, no amount of dialogue should let courts, uh, have courts let legislators off the hook, or we'll have legislators give up their responsibility for respecting those rights, you know? Um, that's one condition of dialogue. The second condition is that whatever, that so dialogue should be about the indeterminate but still related to the meaning of that determinate law aspect of constitutional rights. And the second, uh, condition he has is that it should be a back and forth. It takes this, the, the acquiescence of both branches. Um, yes. In a process that's open to them both, right? It's not just the court says it and the, and the legislature doesn't reply. So that's dialogue and everything. And whatever the court says is then democratic. Mm. It's that we have the expectation that if legislatures disagree with something, they're going to enact it. Um, they're going to enact a reply. And what we have today is, I think, uh, a kind of perversion of that where courts taking responsibility for some things has uh, become an excuse for legislatures not to. Uh, and, right. and when we think about what we all were really, I mean, I think that's correct. Everyone's very interested in the potential flaws legislators have, the realistic flaws of their problems with the ways that they deal with. Rights and the way that they are accountable, the way that they're held responsible for things. But oddly enough, when people talk about the solution to that, they kind of uh, they tend to say, "Oh, well, another institution will solve it. We'll have the courts come in and and take over." Um, But in some sense, I think that's made the problems what we talk about in Parliament and talk about in legislatures worse because Canadians and because Canadians uh, representatives can then say, "Well, that's up to the court. Like we don't really we don't really have to care about that. We kind of just will enact this and see what happens." And it's impoverished our rights discourse. And I think that that third kind of dialogue could do something to, to uh, take an American idea and, uh, and improve uh, the country that, uh, that James Madison invaded way back when.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on, on that note, uh, Jeff, we're going to conclude our discussion for today. Uh, Thank you again for taking the time uh, to chat about your volume. Very interesting stuff uh again uh the the volume is called constitutional dialogue edited by jeff Sigalet, gregoire weber and Rosalind dixon uh so this concludes our second episode for today of the running radio podcast thank you to all of our listeners and stay tuned for our next episode coming up soon bye for now thanks mark